I'm not the same person I was a year ago, and neither are you. How we survived the most unusual year of our lives. Story and narration by Jessica Remo. Story editing by Suzanne Pevkovic. The last time I was in a crowd of people, a real crowd, not the checkout at Home Depot, was January 28th. I got up at 5 a.m. to join the Trump line, that is, the thousands who had converged, some of them days in advance, outside the Wildwood Convention Center in the hopes of sharing a room with the president. This was another of the first-person journalism escapades editors had thrust upon me. I remember the buttons vendors sold with snarky phrases like, Trump 45, suck it up, buttercup. I can still picture the items brought and then abandoned as we wended our way through the line for nine hours and never made it inside. Folding chairs and blankets and even a Tupperware of hard-boiled eggs, which I found hilarious. Also, I froze my ass off. This is all to say, I hope your last pre-pandemic crowd was better than mine. Maybe it was a concert or a sports event or a wedding with an open bar. And while I wouldn't want to relive it again, I do miss the person I was that day. A person with far less anxiety. A person who wasn't afraid of other human beings. I was different then. We all were. Chapter 2. The Before. Every new year starts with hope, and 2020 was no exception. A new decade, an even number, one with symmetry, with cadence. We never could have imagined the fresh hell we were ringing in. January was the last time I got a haircut. It was the last time I was in one room with my family, literally, because my mother decided we should try an escape room on New Year's Day. If the thought of being locked in a small space with your extended family on the hungoverest day of the year makes you groan, I'm sure some of us would have agreed. But if we knew then what we know now, we might have taken our time instead of racing our way out. My anxieties in January were over my unreachable New Year, New Me resolutions, how to keep my mother's eternal campaign for grandchildren at bay, and whether it would be crazy to buy an inflatable hot tub on Amazon. And I totally should have. They cost a fortune now. Do you remember your life from January? The person you were? The plans you were making? The things you thought mattered? Before elbow bumps and social distancing? And waving to your grandparents from behind glass? That was the before. We are still far from the after. In the way that we can easily recall certain years of our lives and not others, 2020 doesn't stand a chance of being forgotten. Quite simply, it's the year we survived. Chapter 3. The Uncertainty February was when Trump was acquitted by the Senate. February was when I booked a trip to New Orleans that I would never take. 
February was when my dad got the flu and wound up in the hospital. When we realized it was the flu, my boyfriend and I immediately, awkwardly, put on surgical masks, available from dispensers in every room at Overlook Hospital then. I thought we looked so silly in them that I took a photo. Two weeks later, you'd be lucky to find a mask anywhere. I remember working as our solo nighttime reporter on February 29th, when an alert said New Jersey might have its first case of this strange new coronavirus, and how relieved I was when the patient tested negative. A week later, I wrote about New Jersey's third and fourth positive cases. Two weeks later, our offices would close indefinitely. In March, the virus ravaged Italy, and I welled up as I watched the spirited, resilient people in the country of my ancestry sing together from their balconies. It still gets me. As the cases in New Jersey rose, I counted the daily numbers to my boyfriend, my mother, whoever— 50, 69, 98, then 427, 742, 890, suddenly over a 1,000. Eventually, I stopped counting. I remember the first death in the state, John Brennan, a horse trainer, and then his connection to the five members of the Fusco family, who also died from the virus. We didn't yet understand this silent, invisible killer, And the uncertainty was terrifying. How does it spread? Should I disinfect my mail? And no, do not try to make your own hand sanitizer. My sister started washing her groceries in the sink and has only recently stopped. We learned what PPE stood for and wondered why there wasn't enough of it, why we weren't more prepared. March was when I almost lost it on my 76-year-old father with all his pre-existing conditions as he threatened to go out grocery shopping himself. It was also when I tried, unsuccessfully, to make distilled water for his sleep apnea machine because you couldn't find it anywhere. March was cancellations and closures, Broadway, the Olympics, school, non-essential businesses, and funerals, too. March was travel bans. March was when the stock market plummeted. March was when Trump finally declared a national emergency. Suddenly, the toilet paper was gone, and I found myself writing, well, the bidet review I never intended to write. March was when, holy crap, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson have it. March was when an ambulance came to a house down the street, all too close proof this virus was real. March was when I wrote about my friend Jen, pregnant with her first baby, and how she was freaking over projections the pandemic would peak around her due date in May. Would there be a bed in the hospital for her, she wondered? I was angry at the deniers and the downplayers by then. I still am. Chapter 4. The Distractions By April, we settled in. We watched Tiger King. We DIY'd. We learned Zoom. Okay, how to mute and unmute took longer for some. 
some of us became experts at what my sister dubbed playing the slots, refreshing apps maddeningly to secure a grocery delivery. I got one for two weeks from now, I'd text my whole family. Does anyone need anything? Toilet paper, Purell, and Lysol wipes, they'd all respond. Oh, and yeast. Good luck. In a panic, I ordered a dozen cans of beans. I still have them. We walked our dogs to exhaustion. We exchanged puzzles. We baked. Outside my home became National Geographic, as fewer cars meant more deer, raccoons, even a groundhog. In April, at 7 p.m., my neighbors and I set off our car alarms and banged pots in unison to cheer on frontline workers. I still think about the morgue trucks. I still think about the doctors and nurses and EMTs. I still don't know how they go to work every day. April meant being told, yes, we should all be wearing masks, but not knowing a war would commence over them. April was when it took John Prine. April was when my family held an Easter Zoom, complete with a show-and-tell bit, just like Jesus would have wanted, right? April was when I heard about Bob Stickles, a beloved educator fighting for his life. Suddenly, I knew someone who knew someone who might die from this thing, and it made me much more careful. After 76 days on a ventilator, Stickles survived and then told me the full, unbelievable tale, which we published in August. In the spring, more of us than ever took up gardening, an act of catharsis, or maybe rebellion, a way to nurture life. I roamed local nurseries because that felt like a safe place to pass time. We planted tomatoes and catmint and impatience and watched them grow, and then fended them from that once adorable groundhog. May meant a drive-by for my nephew's 18th birthday. He and my niece missed graduation, prom, and more, like so many others in the unfortunate class of 2020. In May, the economic devastation was just beginning, and I interviewed distraught business owners. It feels like a sucker punch, Courtney Frank of Forum Tuxedos in Hazlitt told me. I'm scared to lose the business, lose my house, all over something I didn't do, I couldn't control. I wrote about a single mother who survived homelessness and domestic violence, but had to quit her job because she had no one to stay home and watch her children, one of so many women forced out of the workforce by the pandemic. She was also among the thousands who couldn't get through to unemployment. Chapter 5. A Call to Action It was May 25th when Derek Chauvin, a white Minneapolis police officer, put his knee on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds while Floyd screamed that he couldn't breathe and cried for his mother. In a country long grappling with racial bias in policing, a country already struggling to reconcile the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, this brutality, caught on video, sent shockwaves. 
Protesters filled the streets. Protesters who told me things felt different this time. Protesters who told me things had to be different this time. Racial justice and police reform became a central part of the 2020 election. Floyd's death sparked a worldwide response. Cities painted Black Lives Matter murals on their streets, including here, in Trenton, Patterson, and Jersey City. In July, the New York Times estimated that 15 to 26 million people in the U.S. participated in recent demonstrations over Floyd's killing, making the protests the largest movement in the country's history, according to interviews with scholars and crowd-counting experts. At a June 6th protest in North Plainfield, James Patrick, 42, told me he and his wife have had the talk with their children. If you saw the video, you saw a man die right before your eyes, Patrick said. I mean, there's no denying it. It's something that's been going on for years. It's just that now we have social media to put it out to the public. I watched as cops took a knee with protesters in North Plainfield that day. Then they shot hoops together. Days later, in Gloucester County, a group of men reenacted Floyd's killing, with one kneeling on a man's neck, taunting protesters as they marched by. One of those men turned out to be a state corrections officer. Chapter 6. Packed Beaches, Back to School, and oh yeah, an election. Though summer didn't totally squelch the virus like we hoped, we understood better how it spread and spent time with each other outside. People were eager to get to the shore, and towns struggled to restrict badge sales and maintain social distance on the sand. Blow-up pools were sold out everywhere. There were no big 4th of July fireworks displays, though people set them off in their yards for a month straight, it seemed. In August, Joe Biden officially became the Democratic candidate. August was when I waved out my birthday candles on an ice cream cake, which I shared with my family on my front porch. And then my college roommate and I drove seven hours to Maine when our other roommate's father died suddenly because we wanted to just be with her, which turned out to be so important and something we may not have done if life were as busy as it used to be. In September, my two sisters, a first-grade teacher and a high school vice principal, went back to school. So did my six nieces and nephews to varying degrees of virtual and in-person instruction. I talked to other teachers and school staff who couldn't or wouldn't go back. I talked to parents and learned what a learning pod is, and I still truly do not know how my friends with children, or gulp, teenagers, are managing all of this. In September, indoor dining reopened at 25%, and I asked restaurant managers and owners if they thought they could survive the winter that way. Time will tell. Also in September, frustrated by my hair but afraid of being inside a salon, 
I bought shears on Amazon, watched a video on YouTube, and cut my own to moderate success. In October, Trump got COVID-19, and the second wave began in earnest. I left out candy on Halloween, but hardly had any trick-or-treaters, like so many others. In November, well, you remember November, don't you? An election, a country divided, a week spent on my couch, glued to CNN, and I'd sooner forget it all. John King was in my dreams. And yes, we skipped our big Thanksgiving, much to my mother's dismay, though she did deliver stuffing to all of us. This will be the first time she's ever prayed for a 60-degree Christmas or even a 50-degree day sometime around Christmas so we can maybe get together outside. Chapter 7 Can you imagine the history books? Can you imagine the kids years from now trying to memorize all that happened in 2020 from their history textbooks? Or whatever replaces textbooks? Around the world, things were downright biblical. Locusts, murder hornets, fires, floods, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanoes, explosions, UFOs, mysterious monoliths, you name it. We lost some of our brightest stars. RBG, Sean Connery, Chadwick Boseman, Little Richard, John Lewis, Kobe Bryant, Regis, Alex Trebek, Bill Withers, Eddie Van Halen. I'll just stop there. We're still a country divided. We're still facing a mental health crisis, an opioid crisis, the long-term effects of stress, isolation, unemployment. Also, coming soon, evictions. But as I write this, people are starting to be vaccinated, and the year is ending, and we will have a woman as vice president at the same time as bras may be dead forever, which can't be a coincidence. Plus, there were some winners. Bike shops, and Ben and & Jerry's, and dogs, introverts, golf clubs, people who like to work from home, Jeff Bezos, people named Karen not so much. And it's looking to be a stellar month for you makers of hot chocolate bombs and coquito. Besides, whatever 2021 may bring, at least it won't be 2020, and for that, give thanks. When I ask my mother what she would do if the pandemic were over tomorrow, she's got the same answers I'm sure you do too. To go out to dinner, or go on vacation, or to a Broadway show, she says, with pep in her voice just thinking about it. And to have a big family dinner, all of us around the dining room table, all of us talking, all of us laughing, you know. And hugs, she adds. Remember when we would hug and kiss people we hardly knew just to say hello? I ask her to help me with this story, to find the silver linings of the most unusual year of our lives. Well, it's like God gave us a timeout to remember what's important, she says, and we realized we don't need as much as we think we do. It won't all get better in 2021, but she's right. 
life slowed down. It was a year of loss and divisiveness and lockdown, but also resilience, compassion, innovation. Despite social distancing, we refused to disconnect from one another. We brought groceries and dropped off baked goods and asked, really asked, how one another was doing. We sang from balconies and banged pots and finally figured out how to unmute ourselves. And soon, hopefully, we'll really be together, in person together, in crowds together, at concerts and sports events and weddings with open bars again. So please remember, 1.7 million people are gone. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, parents and grandparents, Holocaust survivors and war veterans, and more than 18,000 of your New Jersey neighbors and counting. You are still here. And in 2020, that should be enough. Story and narration by Jessica Remo. Story editing by Suzanne Pavkovic.